This is a story about the movies, classic films that a professor at Yale University adored, explored, and built a long-standing popular college course around. If you want to see a really convincing transition of personalities, then this is the film for you. It's a very good mystery thriller. That's Golden Voice, too many awards to list, more than a thousand titles to his name, narrator Grover Gardner. Aaron stutters, is hesitant, speaks in whispers, and is constantly looking at the floor. He sure looks like he's He performed the audiobook for Madness at the Movies. And we're going to talk about his work on this fascinating book that explores films and their portrayal of mental illness. Written by psychology professor Dr. James Charney. On this, Desideratum. A desideratum is an essential thing. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, talking about how stories are essential, both the art of telling and the journey of listening. Before we get started, a quick thank you to our sponsors. You know that old saying, don't work harder, work smarter. Well, for me, Positron is all about working smarter. Positron is an audiobook prep and proofing subscription service that helps narrators and publishers do their jobs. They save me time on menial but crucial details. Then I have more time for creativity. So, if you're an audio storyteller, go to Positron.com. Sign up for a free demo. Tell them thanks for sponsoring this episode. Okay, one more big thank you to Blackstone Publishing, the independent publisher and producer of powerful page-turners across all genres, with new award-winning authors and collectible classics. Blackstone is providing a discount code for listeners for 50% off the Madness at the Movies audiobook. Be ready for the code after our chat with Blackstone's senior producer and golden voice narrator, Grover Gardner. Well, a great example of the background is when he talks about Psycho. And uh, he introduces the film by talking about the fact that, um, you know, when he was a kid, he went to the movies and it was a double feature. And there was an A movie and a B movie. And you and then there were shorts and cartoons and newsreels and all this stuff. And you kind of you came in whenever you wanted to come in. People came and went. Didn't matter. You paid for a ticket and you you could come in whenever you liked and you could stay in the theater as long as you liked. Hitchcock convinced the movie houses. In fact, they had to sign an agreement that they would not let anyone in after the film started. So a couple of things happened. One, people were like anticipated, why can't we come in in the middle? What, what is this? What's the big surprise? Two, people would line up outside the theater to get in. It made going to the theater a different kind of experience than it had been before. Right, exactly. So, I mean, that's just a great example of the kind of background that he gives you. Yes, it's very comprehensive. I thought when I first began listening that it was going to be um, all in that psychological thriller genre. 
that it was going to be kind of one intense movie after another. But he really goes from from sort of an intense and extreme to um, more recognizable, I don't know, just really insightful analysis of of personality disorder that seemed more relatable to me. Like the movies love villains. Right. Right. And I thought we would really just be talking about villains, but it's so much more than that. The, uh, the chapter on ordinary people is enormously interesting because he's a family therapist and, you know, he's, he talks about the film. First of all, he says it always makes him cry. He's watched it, you know, dozens of times and he still weeps, you know, finds it very moving um, he loves the portrayal of the therapist uh, by Judd Hirsch and the way the script really follows the idea of how therapy works very well and tracks it well and represents it well. He only has one issue, and I'll let listeners discover you know, what that is, but there's only one fault he finds with the script and with Judd Hirsch's performance, but it's a small one. But uh, he goes into a lot of depth because this is his specialty. Uh, He talks a lot about how family therapy works. What are the agreements between the therapist and the patient? Um, And it's very interesting. And of course, it's a lovely film, but I don't know that I've ever seen anybody approach it. Dissect it in that way. Dissect it in that way. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I, that's the other, that's kind of the third category of like, this is a book for film enthusiasts. This is a book for people interested in psychosis and psychology in general. This is also a book for therapists or people who just want to understand therapy better. He also, we get a little gloss of the, the history of psychoanalysis, starting with Freud in this country anyway. And why Hollywood is so, how Hollywood got so enamored of, uh, you know, he talks about uh, uh, the Hitchcock film Spellbound with Gregory Peck. And he talks about how this, this is a great example of Hollywood's fixation on Freudian analysis. But then as that fell out of fashion, that all changed. And they got into then Jungian and then uh, psychodynamic dynamic psychotherapy, um, stuff like that. So different philosophies and Freud fell out of fashion. But uh, so you also get kind of a, a little overview of, you know, trends in psychoanalysis and psychology yeah, and therapy. Yes. Yeah. He does sort of give that sort of historical perspective on forms of therapy. Um, I also really liked from an audiobook standpoint, that he includes scenes from almost every one of these movies. Yeah. He's written out the dialogue for you. He's given you, this is the instance in this interchange. And I loved hearing you oh, bring those to life. Well, I had to go. And I mean, if I didn't remember the movie, I had to watch it. So I did end up watching a lot of the films because I thought, boy, if I say this, you know, this is a very well-known film. If I, if I stress the wrong thing or if I say it wrong, I'm going to miss his point. You know, people are going to say that's not the way they do it, you know. Yes. I mean, from that standpoint, it, it seems to me like a very 
it was a, it must have been a challenging project. Well, Night of the Hunter, I know very well. I'm very familiar with that film. And I remember Mitchum, you know, very well. Uh, he's really terrific in that film. And his singing, uh, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arm. It's creepy. It's creepy as heck. <laughs> and the only reason I know that hymn is because it's from that very creepy movie where it sounds so threatening. Uh, so uh, that was fun. And it's a really enjoyable journey. And he wraps up at the end with um, a general talk about how therapy itself is portrayed in so many movies and what's really the right way to portray it and what isn't. And so it's really, it's, it's it's quite fun, but he's got enough. There's enough sort of uh, juicy gossip and tidbits in there for film buffs, and uh, enough real sort of experience, depth of experience with psychotherapy to uh, I think satisfy the professionals in that area as well. So um, it's quite quite wonderful. He really did a marvelous job. It is a wonderful book, and I think a lot of times people. Um, put themselves in categories with audiobooks. Like, well, I'm a nonfiction audiobook listener, or I'm a fiction audiobook. You know what I mean? Like, people pick genres that oh, that's what I do for audiobook. But this this defies some of those boxes, I think, because of all the things you just mentioned. Yeah, and and also it steers you. Uh, he's very good at pointing you toward films that, if you haven't seen them, he really makes you want to see them. Yes. And he even includes some comedy, some satirical work. You know, there's some Peter Sellers there. I, I think it's just a really, it's an amazing collection. And I think it speaks to his professionalism as a teacher. This is a course. It's a really well fleshed out, researched, beautiful course. And here it is served up to audio listeners. You know, you just get to tap into this man's immense depth of knowledge and wealth of being able to express it so beautifully and boom, there it is. It's accessible to you. It's very, it's very accessible. Uh, but also you, you also get some interesting uh, perspective uh, and context on the films in terms of how we see them today, because he often talks about how his students react to the movies. And uh, I, I, you get the sense that he's continually surprised and sort of delighted that uh, students, how fascinated they are. Yes, how it resonates, right? And these are these are classic. These are all older than twenty five years ago filmed, at least I think. Pretty much, yeah. Yes, but but I also think like for me, it's also accessible in terms of. Um, I was reading that you began your audiobook journey in a Library of Congress that your first work in audio was sort of bringing storytelling. Was it for the blind? Was it? Oh, yeah. It was for the blind and the blind and physically handicapped. Yeah. I remember reading that and thinking that your original work, the original sort of entry into audiobook, was about accessibility in providing access to story to someone who may not be able to access it uh, traditionally. Right. Yeah. And this... This book, to me, also feels like this great 
audiobooks uh, provide are an access point to all kinds of fascinating knowledge. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. A good nonfiction book tells a very good story if the author is a good storyteller. You know, just Robert Caro, who wrote the Lyndon Johnson biography, four volumes so far, is a brilliant storyteller. He's a brilliant storyteller. It's like a novel. You're just hooked from the first page. Yes. And you, in your career, you have intersected with that multiple times. You you have uh, either been drawn to or authors in that genre are drawn to you. I'm not sure which happens first, but you, um, your resume of audiobooks, which is enormous, over a thousand, includes some very compelling nonfiction, like the Civil War The Shelby Foot. Oh, yes. Before the dishes could be set in front of him, however, a house servant came running with news that Joe, their five-year-old, third of the four children who ranged in age from nine to three, had fallen from a high rear balcony onto the brick-paved courtyard 30 feet below. They hurried there to find him unconscious. Both legs were broken and his skull was fractured, apparently the result of having climbed a plank some carpenters had left resting against the balustrade when they quit for the noonday meal. He died soon after his mother reached him, and the house was filled with the screams of his Irish nurse, hysterical with sorrow and guilt from having let him out of her sight. His brother Jeff, two years older, had been the one to find him lying crumpled on the bricks. I have said all the prayers I know how, he told a neighbor who came upon him kneeling there beside his dying brother, but God will not wake Joe. Under the first shock of her loss, the emotional impact of which was all the greater because she was seven months pregnant, Verena Davis was nearly as bad off as the nurse. But the most heartbreaking sight of all, Burton Harrison thought, was the father's terrible self-control which denied him the relief of tears. Little Joe had been his favorite, the child on whom he had set his heart. You have the mental and physical, I'm sure, stamina for, for investing yourself into big projects, multi-volume. Yes. Which is a really specific passion and skill, I think, in the audiobook industry. But you're not limited to that at all. Like, the other sample you sent me was this fabulous little sample from News of the World. Then he saw her crawling toward him with the shotgun in one hand and the shot box in the other. Somehow she had managed to stack the bag of coins on top of the shot box and shove that along too. She was covered in dirt. He supposed he was too. She pressed the bag of coins toward him and gestured down the ravine. Johanna, they are not going to be bought off, he said. He patted her arm. Her hair was coming out of the braid and it hung over her young, childish face in swags. He said, they can't be bribed. They are not going to be made to go away with offers of coin. He looked into her anxious blue eyes and a terrible thought came to him. He felt his eyes leaking tears or sweat. She could not be allowed to fall into their hands. Never, never. He had eight shots left, six in the cylinder and two... In oh, the I, loved, I loved that book. 
Absolutely. I think it's my favorite book of everything I've ever done. Uh, that was my favorite book. I wonder too, I guess, you know, the perspective that you have, I think a lot feels like uh, an explosion of growth, it, just even in the last maybe five years in the industry of audiobooks and in the the production of them and the listenership and all of that, like that, it, but I feel like you have a very, uh, you have a long view of that, right? Well, it's been 42 years. Uh, working at the Library of Congress, of course, we uh, sometimes we go back in the stacks and we pull out the old 16 RPM discs that they recorded books on. And you, you had this big, heavy case of, you know, vinyl discs and you put them on this special player. Oh, like a record uh, would have a needle to read it. Yeah, records. Oh, wow. Sure. There were a bunch of those back there. They still had them. But uh, by the time I came along, things were going on cassette. You still needed a pretty hefty box to jam all those cassettes in there and carry it around in your car and, you know, load it in the car and all that stuff. And then CDs came along and they helped. But the big, the huge change was, of course, download was audible. That was a whole different world. And I remember people saying, well, you can't download an audio book on your modem. You know, boop, beep, boop, boop. <laughs> you know, those little, little modems ran off your phone line. Yes. You know, and take you. And I remember the early, the Audible, they had a special player. And you had to hook it up to your computer. But then you had to download the book from Audible. And even at a very low bit rate, and they sounded it didn't sound very good, but it was what they had. You know, it'd take all night. You'd start at night. Right. And you'd start the download. And then by the time you got up in the morning, you could transfer the book to your, you know, the recording to your little audible device, your player, and then take it with you in the car. The technology. Yes. I guess, you know, I was thinking when I asked you about the long view, my first thought was about, you know, just the growth in industry and how many how many books are being produced and how many people are involved. But really, I love that you took that right to technology because the access to the technology, the access to the recording and the distribution and the listening, right, has all just been transformed, absolutely transformed. Sure. I think it's actually remarkable as I'm thinking about that, that your, your career, your engagement and involvement has weathered all of that because that's also you know just every stage of that has been adapting to new environment well i have and uh, you know i've had to reinvent myself several times starting at the library of congress and then uh i got into recording uh for books on tape the, the company books on tape and you know they used to send us boxes of books boxes I had a shelf in my, you know, my basement studio area with just, you know, there, I got to get to that one and then that one and then that one. And then I have to do this one. And then I have to, first of all, there were no release schedules. This was all backlist material, but for books on tape, recorded books, Blackstone, all these companies, it was all backlist. It was the library. Right. Exactly. Right. So there was no rush, you know, so they would send you, and I think there are, 
maybe about 100 narrators in the country. You know? But the point being that the boxes stopped coming. Then I had to go out and start marketing myself. And I did. Uh, there wasn't a lot of social media then, but I would send out mailers. And I would, that stuck up. Then I reinvented myself as a producer. Uh, I installed three, four booths in my tiny house in Mount Rainier, Maryland. <laughs> we, had, we had three booths because volume was going up. And so companies started coming to me and saying, we need narrators. We need So I got people from the local acting community, uh, Kate Redding, Michael Kramer, uh, Lloyd James or Sean Pratt, a number of people there who are now quite well known. And then finally coming to Blackstone as a producer, director and narrator. I, oh, I love Blackstone because most companies wouldn't let you do that. Wouldn't let you wear that many hats. No, uh-uh, not at all. Yeah, uh, they recognize your strengths. It says something about their ability to see all that you have to offer. It's also just, it's great. It's great life advice to be flexible and uh, and to be able to see uh, kind of where things are going. Like that was pretty prescient of you to, to open up studio space like that. Yeah. Well, uh, it was it was it was necessary, but I'm a I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So uh, I'm an optimist, and I always think, you know, uh, some friend of mine said, "You always land on your feet," and I said, "Well, it takes a little. <laughs> you got to jump. You got to jump around a bit until you find. You know, I mean, you got to pull yourself up before you can get on your feet again. But uh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so in. In this role, are you also casting? Are you also like seeking out new narrators? Oh yeah. What is that process like? Or what what advice do you have for people that are um that are trying, you know? First of all, let's talk about auditions because this is new. This is new. This uh this emphasis on approvals. The author having to approve the narrator, it's ubiquitous in the industry now. And uh, wow, it's a big change. It's a big change for producers. It's a big change for narrators. It's a big change for publishers. So here's the thing. Prior to a few years ago, when this all started, this approval thing, you know, you could get to know a producer through a workshop or a meet and greet or something and say, you say, you have a nice British accent. You know, send me some samples. And it was easy because it was your choice as a casting director to pick whoever you wanted. So it was easier to establish relationships because you didn't have to go through this extra process. Let's start with that. This industry is about trust. Period. I have to try. I'm going to send you an 18-hour book, and I'm not looking over your shoulder, and I don't know how you work or what you're doing. I don't care if you work in the middle of the night or if you work during in the morning. I don't. Doesn't matter to me. But I trust you to do that book and get it done on time, <laughs> because if you don't, it's a disaster. If I wait four weeks for you to send that book back to me, and at the end of four weeks, you didn't do it. I'm stuck. 
I'm really stuck. I'm four weeks behind schedule. Oh, my Lord, it's a disaster. And release dates are extremely important now. You know, there are pre-sales and marketing and, oh, gosh. So it's about, it's about trust. You build relationship. But that's not hard to do if you can get in touch with people um, and meet people and just you're interested, you're literate, you're interested in reading books, you're a good reader, you're a good site reader, you're a good, you do your own research, you do your homework, you know, all that stuff. But it takes a long time. It takes a lot of time, generally speaking, to get your foot in the door and to get people to notice you and then get to know you and then finally trust you so that you become a part of their regular kind of stable of people that they, their go-to people. So it got to be a lot harder than when you could, you could pinpoint the people in your roster that you thought, well, this is who I talk to when I'm doing a thriller. And this is who I talk to when I'm doing a rom, a romance, a cozy, right? And, but instead of that, you're casting a really wide net and, and you might get, you might get, you know, someone you've never heard before, I guess, but it's, it is a lot more work. I can, I can understand what you're saying completely. I have to think about, okay, I've got to get four people who are right for this book and are available in the time slot and can do this and can do that and can, and you know, or I got to get six people. I submit this. And so three or four days to get these auditions together. Then I submit and to the publisher, thanks. We'll get, we'll let you know. It could be a day, it could be three weeks before I hear back. And everybody's sitting and they're emailing saying, have you heard anything about the book? Holding their schedules open. And it's not like a two minute voiceover where you could say, oh, great, thank you. I can knock it out today. It's a th- it's a two week project or a three week project. And <laughs> we're all waiting. So it's a crazy situation. It's, you know, that's the problem with audiobooks is they don't fit into there there's no fast way to do them there's no fast way to do them and yet we're stuck in a world now where deadlines are tight and everybody wants it they got to get this done and I need I need seven auditions for this blah, 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 you know that is a brilliant synopsis that you just nailed it exactly on the head because I was just thinking like all this technology that we just talked about that allows us to do things, bing, 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 bing. And yet really, it is a slow art form. Oh my goodness, yeah. It's real time, yeah, it is. That is a great summary because we are still dealing with the art of storytelling by a human being. So what does all that mean? You know where all that points. AI. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. And people say, oh, now, are you worried about AI? What do you think? Well, I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be used. It's going to be used for a lot of backlist stuff, but we're not there yet. And even if you listen to the best of the stuff that they have out there right now, boy, it gets tiring awful fast. Because you have to work as a listener. You have to work to put together what that 
what those were, what that voice is saying, because the voice doesn't put it together. That's a really good way to articulate it. There's some disconnect. The words are being said, but the meaning is being lost. Very much, very much. And I don't know that they'll ever overcome that. But like I say, for a lot of things, it'll probably be all right. And it will get better. I'm sure they'll improve it. Maybe to the point where you can't tell the difference. But I don't know. I I, I have a hard time thinking that James Patterson or Michael Chabon or Jonathan Franklin Foyer or, uh, uh, you know, Nora Roberts or any top author, Margaret Atwood, anybody like that. Stephen King. Can you imagine? Stephen King saying, sure, do him with an AI voice. Oh, no, he would never consent to that because they want real people. So I, 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 th- I think authors are going to be the ones, and they have a lot of control now over who reads their books. Yes, that's a really good point. That's a really good point because we were just talking about how they have sort of infused themselves into the decision-making where they were not there before. And, and the power, putting the power in the hands of the storyteller is, is probably a big part of the solution. Yeah. All right, so the, the name of the podcast is Desideratum, which um, my parents had a poem hanging on the wall when I was growing up called Desiderata. I remember and it was full of life lessons. Begins with go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. So I always like to ask people that I talk to, storytellers, um, desiderata means the desire for essential things. For you, what do you desire? What do you think is most essential? Oh, I am not a person who thinks so. A lot about things like that. What is essential? Well, I have always enjoyed my work and I've always been fortunate to do things that I enjoy. You know, people say, oh, I can't wait to get out work so I can go to the lake or I can do this and do that. Well, I've kind of always just enjoyed my work and I've been very lucky and I can't think of a better business uh, for me to be in uh, than this. Um, Beyond that, I'd like to see my daughter graduate from college. (laughs) She's she's clawing her way through and she's she's hanging in there. And uh, uh, I, I, I would like to keep working and I probably will just keep working. But I've enjoyed this. I still enjoy it. And I, I don't know. I, I think I, I can't imagine, you know, doing being stuck in a job. I'm so fortunate. I can't imagine being stuck in a job that I didn't, that I hated or that I didn't like or that didn't bring me any pleasure. Uh, I've always gotten enormous satisfaction out of everything I've done in this business. So I guess I guess that would be it, to keep doing this. Yeah, I love that. I think that's, I think that might be the best answer actually, to love what you're doing. It is a rare, I think as, um, as a job to interact with literary fiction, to delve into what was the author's intention to find empathy for every character, 
to find voice for every character literally is such an ex, uh, exhilarating, um, exciting process. All right. So here's here's my story about that. Mm. When I was 15, my family moved to, uh, I was the only child left at home, and my parents moved to Belgium. Oh. Well, it was just fabulous. I mean, first of all, you could drive a moped <laughs> at 15, and I thought that was just unbelievably exciting. It was a wonderful experience, but there was no television. There was no TV. So I always liked to read, but I never really got into it that much, but I started reading. And when I came across a book that I really loved, and I read a lot of weird, because we lived right down the street from one of those old penguin bookshops, okay? All those glorious paperbacks just lining the set. And I would go in there once a week and just pull out, you know, things like Arnold Bennett and George Gissing. But I remember once reading a, a book and I, I loved the page so much that I started, that I read it out loud to myself. This is when I was 16 years old. And I thought, boy, I would love to like read books out loud. Wow. And I got to do it. But I distinctly remember that day. I was in my bedroom and, and, and I bought, I went to an antique store because there were tons of old this is back in the 70s, and there were tons of old uh, thrift shops in, in Brussels and stuff. And I bought this old Art Deco chaise, and I put it in my room. My mother was like, what do you want that for? And I, it's, she said it was all dusty and everything. And I said, I want a reading chair. I want to read. And so I remember sitting in that thing and coming across, it was Norman Douglas, hmm. Old Calabria. I think the book was called. It was sort of a, tra he was a travelogue writer. He was an expat in the 20s. Armchair travel and yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and he wrote wonderful books about living in Italy and Sicily. And, and I said, that was so beautiful. I would love to read that out loud. Here I am. I hope you enjoyed hearing Grover's perspectives and narration as much as I did. As promised, here is the code for listening to the rest of the story from Blackstone Publishing. Go to downpour.com, select the audiobook Madness at the Movies by James Charney, click Buy Now, and apply the promo code Blackstone50. That's Blackstone50, all one word. Then head to checkout and enjoy. Thanks again to Positron, Blackstone, and Grover Gardner. I'm Teresa Bakken. Hey, Mom. Thanks for always listening. <laughs>